the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer near canada's wonderland in the maple auto mall luxury is closer than you think round one on round one laura babcock is here from power group communications host of the o show matt gurney journalist co-founder of the line which is an online magazine and john burnside toronto city councillor is here as well let's actually start with uh, service ontario the move to staples we'll learn more about this privatization deal later on actually before this show is over i think it's at 8 30 this morning the minister is going to speak uh john burnside i'll start with you on this one i know that for some people it's you know more philosophical than anything else it's kind of like when you talk about uh, privatizing aspects of the healthcare system but really i don't care go move service ontario to staples and you know let's do something else a hundred percent. Other than, you know, the tendering process, yeah. how that went, we put that aside for a second. Um, for me, it's about what are the hours and where is the location? When I want to go to Service Ontario, I'm always trying to think, well, where did they move to? Where are they? Same with the post office before they started going into Shoppers Drug Marts. I now know I go to a Shoppers, there's a post office. Um, and you I can know, get some incense while you're there. Yeah. Right. Laundry detergent, some eggs, you know, you name it. And um, so for me, it's all about that. Like, I don't care if it's a government employee taking my picture for my driver's license. Matt Gurney, I liked one of the quotes in the coverage that everybody had this morning for background on this story where they said, we've moved beyond the era where you have to go to some sort of a cathedral-like building in order to get government services. When I think government facilities, I think cathedrals. <laughs> That's what always comes to mind for me. Um, you know what, this is one of those things where, first of all, John, I'm with you. Like I don't really care that much about this either. But this is one of those things where we're fighting about something that is, in fact, already routine, right? Like, there is a very large service Ontario. It's not the closest one to my house, but it's the only one that's open on weekends. And it's not too far from me, and it's located in the basement of a Canadian tire. Uh, the councillor has already mentioned, and it's a fantastic example, the nearest Canada Post to me, both of them, in fact, are both located inside pharmacies in many rural areas of Ontario where it's uh, too remote to have a full-size LCBO. They put little LCBO agency stores inside grocery stores or even in some cases convenience and gas marts. There's nothing new about this. I don't know why we're going to have another freakout about this, except, and I'm, I'm going to echo the councillor here, Doug Ford has yet again found a way to totally Doug Ford this one <laughs> and take a reasonably good idea and completely botch the execution because, I don't know, he just feels compelled to do it. Yeah, you're right. So often with this government, it's good policy, bad execution. Uh, Laura Babcock, maybe nobody is freaking out about this. I don't think so. I was actually surprised to see the level of freakout. I, I, you know, we convened our Osho scandal panel and had to talk about the Staples scandal, which I never thought would be a thing. And the reason why people are upset is it builds on a narrative of sole-sourced contracts, of you know, lack of business case. I mean, what it's going to save the taxpayer nine hundred thousand over three years, but it's going to cost eleven million, including retrofitting these private stores. Uh, you know, if they were going to try to add to convenience, excellent. I think that's a great idea. I hate the fact that you know services are locked down to these impossible hours that nobody can ever find time to use. We should be doing much more things online and we should have much more access to things. I'm all for that. I don't mind privatization of things when it makes sense. But in this case, once again, Doug Ford, who has a trust deficit, and there's new numbers that came out in polling about how his personal brand is deteriorating and it might impact the party's fortunes. Uh, independents are now increasingly former PC voters, right? And so what does that tell us? It tells us that Doug Ford 
Ford, as the standard for that brand of the PC party, continually makes things hard to take in terms of, you know, is this legitimate? How is it sole source? What's the business case? What about all these private business, these, these families who had these Service Ontario locations? Uh, what about these NDAs that had to be signed? I mean, what's going on? So everything that he does, the way that he does it perhaps, makes people of Ontario go, you know, you can't have a massive scandal like the Greenbelt and RCMP investigation and then have another big sole source contract with our tax dollars after Ontario placed 95 year secret deal. It doesn't feel good. I wouldn't normally be all that preoccupied with the comings and goings of various candidates in the federal election, which won't happen until 2025. However, Karen Stintz has been a frequent guest on our show and a frequent guest at News Talk 1010 as an analyst, both when she was a city councillor and now that she's in uh, in another job. Um, Karen Stintz has uh, said she wants to run for the Conservatives in Eglinton Lawrence. Let me come back to you, Laura Babcock. One of the important things for a political party is to appear to have momentum by recruiting star candidates and you know at the moment Pierre Polyev does seem to have that yeah, absolutely he does. And I think one of the things that's really key to attracting these named candidates that the community already knows and trusts is that if there is an, an you know, a little bit lack of confidence maybe about the, the character of Polyev, people don't know him as a federal leader yet. They're still getting to know him as a leader of the Conservatives. And of course, we've got the, the, the you know, fear-mongering campaign out there that he's too close to the mega stuff we're seeing in the States. I don't think Polyev's at all like Trump. I don't like a lot of his policies and rhetoric, but you know, it's a, he's a different kind of lifer politician. Um, but the thing is, if you can attract people who are known commodities in their community, then it makes that whole argument that Polyev really is unknown and can't be trusted. You say, well, I, I know her or I know him, and, and if they're working for Polyev, he can't be that bad. So I think it it's very clever to get these kind of local trusted candidates on board soon. Matt Gurney, uh, Scott Reed was here on the morning brief at 6.20. He was somewhat jaundiced by her candidacy which uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I think he, think he sees as somewhat opportunistic, that there's not a lot of shared politics between her and Polyev, but she knows she could win as a conservative. Uh, yeah, and and my goodness, jaundice in politics and opportunism in politics, where will the wonders <laughs> cease? Um, look, I, I think, to, to Scott's point, yeah, of course, and we're going to see more and more of that, right? Because people are reading polls and they're they're making decisions accordingly. The only thing I would add, and obviously, good luck, Karen, if, if she, this is something she wants to do, um, all the best to her. But I would just say it's interesting to note just two different data points that are both telling us the same thing. Not not only do we have uh, Karen Stintz joining up, we've had a conservative, a Doug Ford conservative cabinet minister last week saying that he was actually going to quit provincial politics to run federally. Uh, Sabrina Nanji in her Queen's Park Observer newsletter this morning names names. A few other high-profile Doug Ford conservatives who are apparently looking at making the jump up to federal politics. Meanwhile, we have uh, Nate er Erskine Smith announcing he won't be running again. Last week, David Lametti quits liberal federal politics to return to the private sector. We've had a few others, uh, high-profile liberals, say they're not running. Take one step back from looking at the specific details of any one of these individuals, and what we see here, guys, across the board in multiple jurisdictions and at multiple levels of government here, we see people are pricing in the likelihood of the end of a liberal government sometime in the next two years. Uh, and incidentally, I know at least one person who's got their eye on Nate Erskine-Smith's writing, but I don't want to tell tales out of tune or out of turn just yet. Uh, John Burnside, um, well, your thoughts on this one? <laughs> 
Well, so in terms of uh, candidates for the Conservatives, I would th- I think Karen's the nay plus ultra. <laughs> Highest point. I can always tell when you're working up to the word of the week. I, I didn't want you to go by and me. Week, I've been waiting for this one. Yeah. She's the highest waiting. point capable of being attained. Yes. Um, my all-time favorite politician is Mary Margaret McMahon, a liberal MPP. Uh, you know, she's smart with backbone and principled, and that's how I would describe Karen. So I think, now, the only thing where I think she went a little astray in that article is she said that Pierre Polyev inspired her. I think that's a hard sell. I don't know that he's inspiring anybody, and I think she needs to, uh, you know, I think her, her messaging should be more about she's got conservative values and will keep the party focused on that, not going off into wingnut territory. There's a lawsuit in Quebec that seeks to assert something that a lot of activists have asserted to me, uh, which is the idea that camping in parks is a constitutional right. Uh, Matt Gurney, you know, that that sort of takes the charter to a level of fetish, in my view. Yeah, no, I mean, people have very seriously made that argument to me as well. And, and my response has been to listen thoughtfully and respectfully and then nod seriously and then say to them, no, it isn't. Like, it just isn't. Like, you know, we do have all kinds of laws that regulate the use of both private and public property in this country, and it is well within the authority of local governments to declare certain places off-limits for human habitation. There's nothing new about this. I agree with the activists who are outraged by encampment clearings when we have nowhere to send these people, when we end up dispersing an established encampment and basically driving these people into random alleys and under overpasses throughout the city. That's a problem here. But for the city and for local residents, encampments popping up in parks is also a problem here. We live in a society. We need to find a way to be able to fix all these problems at the same time. We are 100% failing the homeless people we have in this city and in this country. But that does not magically manifest itself as a constitutional right to pitch a tent in a park. Okay, and John Burnside, this lawsuit would have very real consequences here because it would become Canadian case law. Well, it actually, there was, uh, the city of Toronto's being operated under that uh, assumption already. There was case law out in BC that said if you don't have somewhere to offer, right, right the, uh, between 7 p.m. and 9 a.m., people are allowed to sleep in parks. I actually applaud this to the extent that, A, I think this whole homeless strategy and shelter strategy should be part of the federal government. And what happens, though, in these small municipalities is that they kick people out of the parks. They say, here's a bus ticket, enjoy Toronto, and that has to stop. Yeah, I, I know that that happened in one municipality. Laura Babcock, and I won't name it, but they put a bunch of people on a bus, sent them to Toronto, and of course they don't have the resources to come back, so they become Toronto homeless people. It's long been a legend in Hamilton that a, a former mayor in Toronto used to put people on the bus and send them here. So, you know, that, that kind of story has been going around for a very long time. But listen, uh, real time, I, my family, we, we get to spend some time with our homeless population in Hamilton and people who are precariously housed and in poverty every Saturday. And, and this week, there was over a thousand people uh, in the line at Gore Park. And when you talk to all of them, people are there for all kinds of different circumstances, some recently unemployed, um, some a lot because of injuries and because of sicknesses and a lack of health care and access to proper ODSB payments. So it is absolutely a miserable situation that we've created. And sometimes encampments pop up because they start to provide a little community with security. Uh, and sometimes people can't even come to the food line because they're afraid of losing, leaving their encampment. So they send somebody who comes on behalf of the encampment. I mean, they really are small communities that are coming up in a time of crisis. 
and pushing them around and making them disperse and then come back kind of defeats the, the little bit of security that they found for themselves as a supportive community. So we've got to get to a housing first strategy. We've got to stop pushing around homeless people and, and arguing about how many can sit, how close and what tents where and realize that with insufficient shelter available to people in this country, uh, let's focus on that first and getting armories open and all these other emergency shelters and stop worrying about where we put the homeless people or where they find a place to make it through the night. We're focusing on the wrong part of the problem here. I don't want to be glib, but you know, a new graph I'm looking at suggests that medical assistance in dying is more popular in Canada than anywhere else. Uh, Matt Gurney, what do you read into that? Um, we do have an unusually expansive uh, medical aid and dying regime compared to some other countries. So I think that partially explains it. Like, you know, it is more accessible. More people may access it. I do think, though, the social experiment of having relatively easy access to euthanasia and a failing healthcare system at the same time might be producing some perverted outcomes here that we probably didn't plan on. Yeah, Laura Babcock, it, it often worries me. I mean, people will have whatever motives they have, but I've heard of people taking medical assistance and dying just because they think it's going to cost too much to stay alive and they want to leave an estate. Well, there are people who want to take it because they can't take it anymore because of the poverty. Uh, there was a case of a woman in Hamilton who had kids and was like, I can't, I cannot see a future. In fact, had somebody reach out to me for the O show and say a similar thing. Uh, so if we are legislating death for poor people through this, and that is a huge problem, I think that we have to do a lot more to get our ODSP supports up and get rent control back in and help people survive life in our streets in Ontario uh, before we start offering them easy access to death because we're not doing enough to help them as members of our society. I mean, Abraham Maslow, shelter, right? You got to have that stuff before you get to the other levels. And I just want to say on the mentally, on the mental illness thing, I had two close family members during the pandemic, one who was able to get made and the other who had a terminal illness but had been suicidal with the illness and so was not eligible. Uh, so it's a very complicated issue about, you know, how do we bring in that? And I'm glad the government is continuing to review the mental health portion. Thank you all. Good to have you, Laura Babcock. John Burnside, Matt Gurney. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.